Welcome back again, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the China History Podcast. Laszlo Montgomery here with you for the 250th time. Sort of a milestone, but eh, then again, not really. Well, other than to say it was also 10 years ago last week that the CHP was launched. I'm going to interrupt this uh, History of Xinjiang series to bring you something special I grilled up to Mark the occasion of my 10-year anniversary. Be looking for that in this very same RSS feed. I'll keep the Xinjiang series going according to schedule, but between parts 7 and 8, I'll sneak in a little surprise for everyone. Of course, all my Patreon supporters have already heard it, as it's been made available to them more than a week ago. You know, one of the several perks of supporting me on Patreon. Thanks to everyone for all your support and listenership all these years. Also to those of you who just bumped into me by accident recently and decided to stick around. A heartfelt thanks to all of you. Part 7 this time, History of Xinjiang. That place is starting to look more familiar to us now. The only thing missing are the Uyghurs. And we'll finally get to them in this episode. We finished off last time in the afterglow of the Battle of Talas, 751. You know, in popular Chinese history, a big deal is made of this battle, but it didn't make it or break it for China out in Xinjiang. And these Arab and Persian Muslims, China had no beef with them other than this one battle that took place in Kyrgyzstan along the Talas River. There would be no further battles between Arab Muslims and China. So Gao Xianzhi, that Korean general in the employ of the Tang Dynasty, well, after those Karluk allies sided with the Arabs and turned on him at Talas, leading to his defeat, well, he and his army abandoned the western regions, along with pretty much the entire Tang military presence in Xinjiang. Well, they had to beat a path east to go deal with the Anlushan Rebellion that ran from 755 to 763. The whole Xinjiang part of the Tang Empire, once again, began to slip away. Many Chinese still remain behind in the Turpan Basin in Beijing and Gaochang, and they'll become part of the scenery there and added some Chineseness to the melange of cultures already there for centuries. I won't rehash the whole Anlushan Rebellion other than to say it was quite a cataclysm. No one counted all the dead bodies, but this rebellion and the one that followed 11 centuries later, namely the Taiping Rebellion, both of those are considered among the most devastating in all of China history as far as loss of life and human suffering were concerned. And both of these rebellions in their day almost, but not quite, brought down the Tang and Qing dynasties. Once Xinjiang was denuded of the Tang armies, you can guess who poured into that power vacuum. Tibetans and Turks. In 764, during the reign of Tang Daizong, the hopes that the dynasty had of a comeback in Xinjiang were dashed when the powerful Tibetan army closed down the Hexi Corridor and cut off access in and out of Xinjiang from China. And by the early 790s, the Tibetan armies had forced the Chinese to vacate the region, and though it was already pretty much over for the Tang in Xinjiang, that really spelled the bitter end of one of the highlights of the dynasty, the protectorate general to pacify the West. For almost a century and a half, on and off, this 
Tang Protectorate served as the mechanism that projected Chinese influence and energized Chinese interaction with all the great cities and empires of Central Asia. It truly was, as I already stated, in its day, the most cosmopolitan region on Earth. And though we have a pretty good idea what kind of commerce was transacted in both directions, we'll never know the magnitude of ideas, scientific data, engineering designs, mathematics, philosophy, and who knows what else that might have been passed back and forth that accelerated the development of humankind in the East and in the West. And like it had always been since at least the Han Dynasty, probably even before that, Xinjiang was the central crossroads that linked China to those lands beyond. Let me just backtrack a little and give a bit of background uh, to what was happening in Arabia long before the Battle of Talas, right at the dawn of the Tang Dynasty. In 622, when Taizong was battling with his brothers for leadership at the genesis of the dynasty, the Hijra happened. The Prophet Muhammad and his followers left Mecca and rode 300 miles north to Medina. Then in 630, just as Taizong's generals were humbling the eastern Turkic Haganet, the Prophet returned to Mecca, defeated his rivals, smashed the idols in the Kaaba, and the five pillars of Islam were taught for the first time. Two years later, still during the reign of Taizong, the prophet passed, and his followers began fanning out from Arabia and started bringing converts to this new faith. By 650, one year into the reign of the Gaozong emperor, the momentum of the Muslim armies in every direction kept building. And so quickly, already by 652, the Muslim armies had conquered ancient Afghanistan. Then, as it had been for centuries, a once thriving center for Buddhism, trade, and scholarship. Those Buddhas of Bamiyan that were blown up in March 2001 by the Taliban, a couple hours' drive north of Kabul, they were carved about a century before the founding of the Tang. That's how long those things lasted. And if you accept the Book of Tang, the Tang Shu, as gospel, it mentions that in 651, Islam's third caliphah, sent a second cousin of the Prophet Muhammad named Sayyid ibn Abi Waqqas to the imperial capital in Chang'an as the first Arab ambassador to visit China. And he actually did get to meet the Gaozong emperor. And the great and fearless Arab traders who had been coming to port cities like Guangzhou and Quanzhou for ages were now arriving as Muslim Arab traders. And the faith they brought with them and introduced to any potential takers, was now being introduced to China from two directions, via Xinjiang, over the long-established Silk Road trade routes in the West, and from the East, through the ever-expanding sea trade via China's maritime Silk Road. The Muslims of the Umayyad and Abbasid Caliphates will push their enterprise from Arabia all the way east into the heart of Central Asia, and then it will begin to rub up against the farthest western extremes of the Tang Empire. And then sparks will start flying, as we saw in the Battle of Talas last episode. You know, if the Tang military didn't have to abandon ship and rush back to the heartland to deal with Anlushan, 
there might have been more fighting carried out between the Muslim armies and the Chinese. But fate intervened before any bad blood could be spilled that would lead to acts of revenge at a later date. And as we'll see, once China abandons Xinjiang to deal with matters closer to home, it's going to be a long time before the Chinese are able to come back and take over Xinjiang as they had done it in the Han and in the Tang dynasties. Okay, back in part five, we briefly introduce the Turks, the Turkic people, not the Turkish. Once the second Turkic Haganet, or empire, falls in 744, a great diaspora began for these Turks from Mongolia and eastern Eurasia, who left their Mongolian homeland for lands further south and west. And one of the most famous of these Turkic people, certainly in our day, are the Uyghurs. They were the ones who put together a confederation of allies who had led the fight in the defeat of the second Turkic Haganet. The Uyghurs were one of the Turkic people who made friends with the Tang and allowed themselves to be used by the ruling Li family to act as their proxies in all kinds of territorial and political matters north of the Great Wall. Like it is with all these tribes of nomadic people, great and small, who made a life on the Mongolian steppe. Well, they didn't leave any photographic evidence of their origins, nor did they leave behind any detailed written histories. But little by little, clues have revealed themselves that have led to more understanding of the early history of the Uyghurs. The Chinese today call the Uyghurs the Weiwu'ar, but back in the earliest days, during and before the Tang, they referred to them as the Huihe, or the Huihu, as well as other names. And like it is with a lot of these people whose homeland was in and around present-day Mongolia, their history was mostly written by their sedentary but sometimes warlike neighbors to the south of their lands. The Chinese kept all this written down, and meticulously so. It's believed the most ancient origins of the Uyghurs was in the Arkhan River Valley, smack dab in the center of Mongolia. Nothing special about them, just another tribe of Turkic people with Mongoloid features. They only came to prominence around the 7th century at the time of the fall of the first Turkic Kaganet in 630. Let me mention... The Uyghurs didn't just magically appear during the Tang Dynasty. All these years going back to the Xiongnu, during the Western Han, and during the rise and fall of the Xianbei and the Gurk Turks, they've been there, all that time, in the background, making and breaking alliances with the best of them. There are some scholars who suggest that the Uyghurs were one of the many peoples who emerged from the Xiongnu, but that's never been proven. Not that any scholars of Turkic history would ever stoop to listen to this long-running history show, but if they did, they might be wondering, how is it that up to now I still haven't mentioned a very important Turkic group, the Tiele? The Tiele were not one single people, and again, no exact knowledge of their origins. They were mentioned many times in the Chinese annals as the Chirla and also as the Gaocha, among other names without getting into any complicated detail of the Tiele and all the tribes and clans they were comprised of, it's believed the Uyghurs might have come from them. And the Uyghurs were among the early tribes who, as the eastern Turkic Kaganet started to fall apart, found it beneficial for their future to hitch their wagon 
to the Tang Dynasty's fortune. During the 650s, one of the clans amongst the Uyghurs, called the Yaglakar, rose to dominate this group, and they, whether they deserved it or not, took on the mantle of the Uyghurs and made this their political identity. What the Ashurna clan was to the Gurkturks, that's who the Yaglagar were to the Uyghurs. So these Uyghurs who emerged from these Tiela, or Gaucha people from Mongolia, were early allies of the Tang, and they fought for these armies that we saw last episode, usually led by Eastern Turk aristocrats from the Ashurna clan of the Gurkturks, most famously, as we saw, by Ashurna Sha'ar. So if you bump into any of the 10 million or more Uyghurs in Xinjiang and 300-odd thousand in Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan, those Uyghurs don't look so much like the ones from the 7th and 8th centuries, who I said appeared more like what you'd expect to see uh, up in Mongolia. So how did the Uyghurs end up in Xinjiang and later on get a whole autonomous region in China named after them? Well, this is thanks in great part to the Tang Dynasty, who, as I said, already enjoyed a nice working relationship with the Uyghur Turks, going back to the undoing of the eastern Turkic Kaganate. They couldn't stand each other, but both sides needed the other to shore up their respective shortcomings. During the 690s, in order to tear down the eastern Turkic Kaganate, Tang envoys had approached the Uyghurs and convinced them to join together with two other major tribes. One was the Karluks, who I mentioned last time, the turncoats who caused uh, Gaoxianjir's defeat at Talas, and the other was called the Basmil. So this alliance of Uyghurs, Karluks, and Basmil were able to defeat their overlords in the eastern Turkic Kaganate, and this was in uh, 744. For almost a century, beginning in the year 744 and lasting till 840, the Uyghurs established their own Kaganate in these very same lands that had been once part of the Xiongnu Empire, then the Xianbei, Roran, Gurk Turks, and now the Uyghurs. And this Kaganate stretched from the edges of Manchuria due west to where western Mongolia blends together with Russia, Kazakhstan, and northern Xinjiang. The Uyghurs and the Karluks, not long after, teamed up to defeat their Basmil allies. And after putting them away and chasing them far away from this part of the steppe, the Uyghurs ended up turning on the Karluks as well and made fast work of them. And with these two former allies out of the way, the Uyghur Kaganate began to take off. The capital was built at Ordubalik on the west bank of the Orkhan River, Orkhan Valley, where so much Mongolian history is centered. This is not too far from where the Mongols will build their mighty capital, Karakoram. The Uyghurs, too, had their own great and mighty champion who lifted them up to the big time. This was the second Kagan, Bayanchur Khan, son of the founder. In the Chinese histories, he was called Yingwu Kehan. This Uyghur leader, the greatest the Kaganate would see in its century of dominance, between 747 and 755, finished up the conquest of all lands between Manchuria and the Sir Darya River that ran from the Tian Shan in western Xinjiang all the way to the Aral Sea. Then in 756, one year into the Anlushan Rebellion, the Tang Suzong Emperor, with Luoyang and now Chang'an in rebel hands, 
knocked on Bayan Shur Khan's door, not so much requesting his help as much as he was begging for it. The following year, soldiers from the Uyghur Kaganate helped tamp down the rebellion, and though it didn't spell the end of the chaos and killing, An Lushan himself was killed, but his progeny would keep the fight going until 762-763. Su Zong was, of course, the son of Xuanzong, the great Emperor Ming, who on his deathbed bequeathed the An Lushan rebellion to his son. Now, aside from hastening the decline of the Tang dynasty, the An Lushan rebellion lasted seven years, two months, and a day. And to seal the deal between the Tang dynasty and the Uyghur Kaganate, a marriage alliance was carried out that saw the daughters of both the Tang and Uyghur rulers matched up with princes from each other's land. And I don't want to say that had it not been for the Uyghur Kaganate and their allies, such as the Karluks, that the Tang dynasty would have been swept away. But the way things were going in the early years of the Anlushan Rebellion, it was looking that way. The Tang Uyghur Alliance was also fortified with 4,000 Arabian soldiers of fortune, sent with the compliments of the second Abbasid Caliph, Abu Jafar Abdallah ibn Muhammad al-Mansur. The Tang Dynasty, fighting for its very survival, had to invite many dangerous allies into their world. And once they came, some of them never left. The Uyghur forces didn't fight for the Tang because they liked them. To secure their military support at such a time of crisis as the Anlushan Rebellion, the Uyghurs extracted a very heavy price for their assistance. Paid in silk, royal titles, and other luxury goods. Had it not been for the Uyghurs, it's very likely the Tang Dynasty would have only lasted till the mid-8th century. Their role in mopping up this mess created by Emperor Xuanzong and his beloved Yang Kuifei was quite profound. And the Uyghurs milked the Tang court for all it was worth. The Uyghur Kaganate capital, as I mentioned, was located in Ordu Balik, and their government and administration was heavily fortified with Sogdians, who migrated there after the Arabs overran their idyllic lands and Sogdiana and other locations to the west in and around the Fergana Valley. That's how the Sogdians ended up in Ordu Balik, in the numbers they did. And the Uyghur elites and aristocrats saw a lot of good things and sophistication that the Sogdians could lend to their Kaganate. All the centuries of playing a key role in the transaction of Silk Road commerce had taught them a thing or two about running an administration and how you managed it. And they became officials in the Uyghur Kaganate and managed all the levers and buttons of their government administration. And these Sogdians who had fled to Mongolia also brought with them their culture and religion as well. That's why so many Uyghurs among their aristocracy took to Manichaeism like they did, and later on to Buddhism as well, but not Islam. Not yet, anyway. In fact, Bayan Shur Khan's son, Burgu, was the one royal who had gone head over heels for Manichaeism, and along with the royal family and no small amount of aristocrats, converted to the faith. And in time, Manichaeism became the state religion of the Uyghur Kaganate. And I'm not sure if I mentioned this yet, but the Sogdians also lent their written alphabet to the Uyghurs. And once it was adopted, the Uyghurs, with their 
Altaic spoken language, wrote their texts using this Indo-European, Indo-Iranic script. This script later on became known as the Old Uyghur Alphabet. The Uyghurs found favor not just in the Sogdian alphabet. There was so much else about the Sogdians culturally that was also absorbed by the Uyghurs. And let me also add, just as the Uyghurs looked at the Sogdians as their cultural gurus, well, much later on, when the Mongol Empire was having its great moment in world history, they looked at the Uyghurs in much the same way. Uyghur administrators had a huge hand in the actual running of the Mongol Empire. Some argue that this embrace of Sogdian culture softened the Uyghurs up and allowed them to turn their back on their traditionally rough-and-tumble lifestyle at the steppe, which ultimately led to their being overthrown by a less cultured but better-armed competing tribe. The Sogdians also acted as the Uyghurs' agents in carrying out the horse-silk trade. This was one of the primary ways that the Uyghurs leaned on their Chinese partners. The Chinese had a never-ending demand for horses to fight in their battles. Nothing had changed since the Western Han. China could never get enough. All the way up to the 20th century, in fact, there remained a constant horse shortage. Well, up in the Uyghur Kaganet, there were lots of horses. All that expanse of grasslands, not suited for agriculture so much, but Mongolia was to horses and sheep what Saudi Arabia would become for oil. You remember, of course, from that epic 10-part series I did back in 2014-2015 on the history of tea? Well, they had the tea horse trade and the famous Cha Ma Gu Dao, the ancient tea horse road, to facilitate the trade of tea for horses. Well, this horse silk trade during the Lake Tang was a little less equitable with the exchange rate of horses for silk set at such a rate that well, the price of each horse was much higher than what the market would yield. Extortion and intimidation it always worked. But besides that, the chaos in northern China caused by the rebellion had shattered the economy to the extent that everything was thrown out of whack and there were wild fluctuations in the exchange rate between silk and horses. You know, this silk that I'm talking about here wasn't silk brocade ready to wear. It was all raw silk, something the Uyghurs and any nomad had little or no use for. But this silk traded for horses was a commodity in itself. And just like Yogi Berra once said, cash was just as good as money. So it was with silk back then. The Uyghurs took all this silk acquired from the Chinese and traded it for commodities that they needed. And these traders with all that raw silk now would then take it to markets in the West for processing or reselling. In 779, there was a big shakeup in the Uyghur Kaganet that saw Burgu Kagan meeting his end, along with his whole extended family and any supporters. About 2,000 lives in toto. They were all killed by a new Kagan who took over between 779 and 789, the time of the Tang Dezong Emperor. You won't find it hard to believe that about midway into the 9th century, internal dissension and other problems led to a decline in the power and togetherness of the Uyghur Kaganet. Happens all the time. And while the Uyghurs were having their issues, the Tibetans 
took advantage of this dissension and began moving in on all Uyghur-held lands in the Tarim Basin. And what followed was the Uyghur-Tibetan War, which saw the Tibetans emerge on top, and the Uyghurs were pushed out of these rich lands. The Uyghurs had a Sogdian problem. They depended heavily on the Sogdians to manage their government administration, very much in the manner that eunuchs were used throughout Chinese imperial history. And just like the units had, well, these Sogdians had their detractors in the Uyghur government who weren't on board with everything that they were doing. And this group was one of several factions that arose at the top. There was the pro and anti-Sogdian factions. And like we'll see amongst the Mongol Empire much later on, some wanted to maintain their traditional steppe culture and ways, and some wanted to settle down and become less warlike. Going back to the Xiongnu and the Han Dynasty, it had always been a case of one badass after another north of China's Great Wall who were able to unite the nomads into one fighting force that allowed them to enjoy the fruits of hegemony and to also glom off the fat of the Chinese lands to the south. In 840, for the Uyghur Kaganet, eh, their 15 minutes were up. There was a new power who was not only able to put an end to this political organization, they even chased the Uyghurs out of these homelands in Mongolia. So if you were ever wondering, how did all these Turkic-speaking Uyghurs from lands in core Mongolia end up in Xinjiang? Well, this is how it happened. They were pushed out by a group we know as the Yenisei Kyrgyz. They were called that because their homeland ran along the Yenisei River, fifth longest in the world. The source of the Yenisei is in northern Mongolia, and like the Nile, it flows northward, and the Yenisei empties out into the Arctic Ocean. They had been beating up on the Uyghurs on and off since almost the founding of the Kaganate. The Yenisei Kyrgyz had been around since 550, and their base was in a very well-watered area along this great river, just beyond the northwest borders of present-day Mongolia. And as I said, in 840, the lands that had once belonged to so many nations of the Mongolian steppe, including the Uyghurs, now belong to these Yenisei Kyrgyz, who, like the Uyghurs, are said to have also been originally part of these Tiela, Turkic people. These Kyrgyz of the late Tang Dynasty were not the same Kyrgyz you might run into on the streets of Bishkek today. These Yenisei Kyrgyz are also referred to as the ancient Kyrgyz. I guess what's important for our story is that they were next in line after the Uyghur Kaganate to become the dominant power of the steppe. And as the Uyghurs had done to the Karluks, the Yenisei Kyrgyz chased the Uyghurs out of their Mongolian homeland and into the basins of Xinjiang and elsewhere too, but mainly Xinjiang. So 840 CE, 1,180 years ago, with the fall of the Uyghur Kaganate, they too had their own little hijra, or departure, to the west in three general directions and established three kingdoms lasting various lengths of time. We'll see from here on out. It's still quite a complicated history with the same old reliable avalanche of hard-to-remember names of people, battles, and ephemeral names of forgotten places, all written down in the official histories. 
But for the most part, well, not only will you be happy to know, but I'm happy to say, for our Xinjiang story, well, as far as the Uyghurs went, this new age and their history will take us all the way to 1759. So beginning right here in the mid-9th century, the history of these three kingdoms I'm going to introduce is where the more recent history of Xinjiang starts to happen. So this Uyghur diaspora, they mainly ended up in three places, Gansu, Qinghai, and Xinjiang. And rather than start introducing these kingdoms set up by the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, class dismissed. Let's allow the curtain to fall right here until next time when I hope we can meet again. I'll spare you the Patreon and PayPal donation pitch this time. Instead, let me announce one more time, I will be uploading a special CHP series to mark the occasion of the 10-year anniversary of the China History Podcast. I'll start publishing them in a day or so. And by the time we get to the next episode, part eight in this Xinjiang series, the entirety of this special program will have been posted. So I do hope you'll check that out. Okay, this is Laszlo Montgomery for the 250th time. Signing off from Los Angeles, California IA. Please think about coming back for more Uyghurs next time in Part 8. They're going to set up a kingdom out in Xinjiang that doesn't fall to the 13th century. So I hope to see you all next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.